Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a podcast about the ways tech and innovation are making the world a freer, happier, and more loving place. Uh, Today, that means talking about dating, right? It's Valentine's Day. What else are we going to talk about Valentine's Day? Uh, So we're going to talk about dating apps, eHarmony, Tinder, OkCupid, and literally hundreds of other apps targeting ever more niche communities uh, from, I mean, there's like people who only want to date clowns, there's an app, uh, to Bristler for all the beard fetishists among us, which benefits me more than uh, my co-hosts. And while that might seem a bit silly for us to be discussing, think about for a moment that this is a tech with vast and far-reaching social consequences um, for what's more fundamental to the human experience than love and loss. The drive to find a human partner consumes an incredible amount of our mental, emotional, and even financial energy for a significant chunk of our lives. And that millennial's old experience of finding a mate is being transformed before our very eyes by a bunch of probably single 20-something-year-old software engineers in like Cupertino. So, or, or is it? We're going to talk about some of these social ramifications of dating apps. Uh, joining me today are Matthew Feeney, Cato's Director of Emerging Technology, though I bet this topic probably never came up when the board approved your position. It did not. <laughs> it did not. Drones, yes. Self-driving cars. Was, yeah. Dating apps, Tinder, not so no, much. No, this is, uh, this is, I suppose, it's kind of in the remit, Yeah, right? Yeah. I don't know how emerging dating apps are, but... Yeah, I guess it's, it's been still out for like yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And Gabriel Aachen from our marketing team, who has the advantage over Feeney and I of actually using the tech involved. Uh, thanks for joining us, Gabrielle. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Feeney and I, we've been out of the dating game for quite a while, long-term relationships. I've been married a, a decade, so I feel super old. Um, so to kick us off, Gabrielle, can you describe how do these apps work in your experience? So, so I'm just an ordinary user. I've downloaded, I don't know, one of these on my smartphone what do I do? So a lot of the apps, I think there are now um, some different different policies. But I know, for instance, when I started using dating apps, for instance, Tinder or Bumble, you have to set them up through your Facebook. So basically, all your data from Facebook can, in some ways, be immediately as is part of your part of um, your dating app. For instance, your kind of some of your preferences and immediately um, kind of like where you went to college, your um, your work, et cetera. So it can either be good in terms of giving you that push to help, help you set it up, or it also can be bad if you don't want your Facebook being aligned with your dating, dating app and whatnot. So does that show up in there where like where you went to college, does that mean you're more likely, it's more likely to match you with people who went to that same college? Is it that kind of thing? Not necessarily that... Maybe I'm sure there are dating apps that do that or ones that will explore that more in the future, but it's more in terms of that it immediately inputs some information about you. So for instance, if I made a dating app or one that I have made in the past, it will immediately have my name, when I was born, um, and then also you have options whether you want to include your college or where you work now. I've always been someone who I like to keep some things private, so I was able to make it where my where I work isn't isn't on that, unless of course I wanted to. But definitely, there are certain parameters that you can't really escape, so that either is good or bad depending on what you're looking for. I'm trying to guess whether Cato Institute is helps or <laughs> on the dating scene. In DC, yeah, yeah, it could yeah. be interesting. <laughs> so they, you give them access to a lot of information yeah. potentially though, if you're signing up through Facebook and there's some exactly. sharing going on. Yeah. Um, 
Okay, so I've signed up. I've created an online identity. You upload like a photo too, right? Yeah, there are options to upload a few different photos.、Um, I saw on Tinder recently. I, for the record, I don't really use dating apps anymore. But in the past, I have seen that、um, on Tinder, for instance, you can now also include videos. So I guess to make it more millennial friendly in some ways, and to constantly come up with something new to get more users to want to look at Tinder and use that over Bumble or whatnot. So you conclude that photo feeny of you catching like a giant marlin off the coast or something. <laughs> Non-existent photo of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there definitely are many, many pictures of guys for some reason on Tinder that are shirtless, that are fishing or holding a baby. It's kind of this weird combination. <laughs> Never really did anything for me, but. <laughs>、huh. So, in other words.、Um, Uh, uh, Maroon Five frontman from the the Super, super、yeah. halftime show. That, that's his Super Bowl.、Uh, that's his profile pick. I assume. I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get catfished with. But there, there、yeah. are there seem to be a lot of these sites that seem to cater to different kind、mm-hmm. of markets, right? So、yeah. maybe go through. Oh,、uh, you've mentioned a bunch of you know Tinder, Bumble. Why、mm-hmm. would someone pick one over another?、Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I think that they kind of have. I think users are attracted to them based on more of what they're looking for. For instance, Tinder,、um, you can't really set certain parameters, so it's kind of I think associated more for people that just want to have a casual hookup or want something more casual. I have heard of definitely people that I've known or in general that have found their husband or wife on Tinder, which is. Which is great, but I definitely don't think they're the majority.、Um, but for instance, on Bumble now, I know that there are a lot more parameters that you can、um, kind of choose for in terms of even your political beliefs, the height you're looking for. I don't think you do ethnicity. I think that's some other. One. I think you might be able to, but I know there are other dating apps where you can choose like ethnicity, what ethnicity you're looking for. You can get really specific.、Um, So I think that if people want something maybe more serious, they'll turn to that.、Um, There's a, a, a Bumble. The first time I came across it was I was at TechCrunch Disrupt in San Francisco last year, and they had a, they were one of the big sponsors,、mm-hmm. and so they had this like makeover station where you could go over and get free makeovers, and they would take like a profile、oh, pic、wow. for you. And、um, <laughs> I, I didn't do it because、um, I think their most of their marketing. Like, so they're the one of the slogans they had at the booth was. Be the CEO your parents always wanted you to marry, <laughs> which I thought was pretty clever, right? Like,、yeah. and it was clear that they were marketing to、uh, to, to women at the booth.、Um, and my, I think my understanding is they their kind of special hook is that only women get to message first. Or something like that. So you're, if you're a female user of some apps, my understanding is that you get deluged with messages, and the percentage of the from men and often in those me- those messages, I'm sure some of them are legit, but a lot of them are, you know, everything from just annoying to disturbing. Yeah. Oh, definitely. For instance.、Um... One thing I've found is that you get less creepy messages from Bumble. I won't say you get no creepy messages, <laughs> but you definitely get less than using Tinder, where a guy has、um, full full ability to respond whenever they want and say whatever they want. I mean, you could, of course, on any of these apps, report their behavior, but yeah, yeah. Bumble, I think that there's like this incentive for some reason for maybe a guy to kind of. Not seem as creepy or whatnot when you when you start using. waiting for the Bumble ad at the Super Bowl,、uh, where you know 
uh, Bumble, fewer creeps than mm-hmm. other dating apps. It's not exactly a ringing endorsement. <laughs> I wonder if uh, I, I don't. I haven't really thought this through, but I wonder if the the emergence or rise of these dating ha- apps have created new categories for the kind of relationships mm-hmm. people have. So I suppose mm-hmm. we have this old fashioned view that well. Back in the day, you were either single, you were seeing someone, or you were engaged or married. Mm-hmm. And these, but now there seem to be a whole plethora of different designations and labels right. put on things. There's friends with benefits. There's mm-hmm. the girl I'm seeing. There's Tinderella. There's my girlfriend. There's mm-hmm. uh, there seem to be a lot of different ways that people describe uh, these relationships. And I wonder, are these just many different words for the same kind of thing, mm-hmm. or or has the technology really actually brought us different kinds of relationships that didn't used to exist? So I think you touched on this a little bit, Gabriel. Like like Tinder, we associate with like hookup culture. Mm-hmm. If you just want – sometimes it turns into relationship. I mean any kind of social encounter could turn into a long-term relationship. But that's not necessarily why most people go to mm-hmm. Tinder versus – I don't know. What are the ones that are more relationship-focused? Uh, is eHarmony still around? They still yeah. think? Yeah, <laughs> I think stuff so. Like, <laughs> stuff like that, yeah. Um, Another one, for instance, is Hinge, which is also, I would say, more relationship focused because the they're kind of like one thing that the parameters are set up with is that it's kind of based on questionnaires that you answer and people can match with you based on if they like, for instance, how you answered something. But um, kind of going off uh, your point, I would say also one thing is that with dating apps in terms of labels. I think that in some ways they really co- you have to compartmentalize things, and I think that with dating apps and technology in that way, that's kind of the direction it's going at. And that can either be good or bad, but I think that you know if you're meeting someone in kind of maybe more of a natural way, it's more organic. And but I think dating apps is much more rigid, and it and that could I think have um, bad effects. I think the technology might be part of the reason this entire. Uh, set of activities initially, I think, had a bit of a stigma attached to mm-hmm. it. I don't. I, I think that's certainly worn off. But this this idea that uh, it used to be that you know the, the old fashioned view, and I don't know how accurate it actually is, is you know that the young man would pull up and introduce himself to the parents, and then the <laughs> the young lady would walk down, and the parents would know what's going on. And now uh, with with smartphones, you know, anyone can do whatever they want. Uh, and it's, it reminds me of a fear that. People, believe it or not, used to have about cars. Like mm-hmm. the, the idea that the, the more freedom you give people, uh, the more worried that we should be, um, which isn't something I buy into, right? But it's, uh, I think that kind of fear certainly contributed to the stigma, which I think is wearing off. I don't know if I'm wrong about that, but I feel like it's more and more normal to hear about online dating. And well, we can look at the, I mean, we can look at the numbers and um, for, a tech that's really, I, I think the first dating apps were the late 90s, during the late 90s internet boom, um, and adoptions just increased since then. So we're talking about something that's really only 20 years old from its earliest stages. Um, and it's the numbers I saw were that 30% of recent couples say they met their partner in online dating apps, uh, over $3 billion spent by U.S. users alone. So it's become big. I mean, we're talking a third of all new relationships. And given the growth trends, it wouldn't be surprising if at some point over half of all relationships or, you know, uh, long-term relationships start start online, uh, which, you know, it's something that only 3% of people use is easy to see as like, and 3% of a particular kind of person too. I suspect these apps first um, gain traction among well-educated, well-off college graduates. Um, 
so it's starting in particular communities that are perhaps easier to 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 you know caric- caricature than than others. Uh, we can talk about this in a bit too. Like these apps do uh, particularly well among the, the more niche the community, uh, the more the greater the impact of the social impact of the apps are. So uh, when I say a third of recent couples, that's across you know all categories of you know heterosexual, homosexual, you name it. But in the gay community, something like 70% of uh, long-term gay relationships these days are formed through online apps, right? Like, so there, which makes sense because as the community is more dispersed, right? So the percentage of, of Americans who is LGBTQT is small compared to the whole population. They're, they're going to be spread out. It's harder to just go to a random place and find someone else. Your your dating pool, your local dating pool, is smaller, so the effects of lar- widening that pool is is going to be greater for for smaller communities. So, like again, like these effects are not necessarily evenly applied. So, I think in I, I think you could see this even say five years ago that the gay community was much quicker to adopt and accept these dating apps and it's the straight community has kind of taken longer to, to mainstream its views about, about dating apps. Yeah. And for instance, on that, I, I know for instance, you have Grinder, but you also have another app called her, which is a lesbian dating app. And I yeah. think that in some ways I really, I think that the idea of dating apps is so is great for the, for an LGBT community because I think it gives, um, gives people, who identify more as that, um, more agency. And so definitely I think that's a huge benefit of dating apps. I want to raise a question about what what at least some people might perceive as a paradox here, right? Mm-hmm. Because one is we have tons and tons of people on these services and uh, tons and tons of different interests. So it's never been easier, right, to find people who share your hobbies or share uh, or have the body type you're interested in, or share your politics and hobbies. It's never been easier, yeah. uh, and yet there's been an increasing amount of reporting on uh, many, many frustrated men who um, are not dating and struggle to find partners. The the incels, the in- involuntary celibate movement, right? And uh, this seems to be a weird paradox that you have tons and tons of people who who have an unparalleled access to uh, dating pools, right, to, yeah. to look from. And it's never been easier. Uh, so even if you live in the middle of nowhere, it's still comparatively much easier than your ancestors had it. Uh, do we have a theory for why that is? I don't... I think my working hypothesis uh, thinking about this is that so even if on the net having a wider pool helps the majority of people, I mean, it's the greatest good for the greatest number to 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 expand this pool of potential partners. Um, and those benefits accrue um, disproportionately to those who are previously uh, underprivileged, in, in the other like so, if you're again, if you're if you're 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 gay, you have fewer dating options in a pre-digital world. Um, it's harder to find matches. So, folks who are in a pre-digital world, underprivileged, benefit the most. But there is a community of people who are going to benefit less from that transition. That's those who, through circumstance, happenstance. Um, uh, benefit from the old regime, right? And who who is that going to be? It's going to be straight white men. So if you're a straight white male, it used to be, let's say you grew up in a small town, in, I don't know, Iowa, right? You're, let's just say you're in Steve King's district, just just because. You, you know, but you, you grew up in a small town in the middle of nowhere in Iowa. The number of potential matches for you 
is pretty slim. Even having family help you try to find you, know, I, there's you know Aunt Aunt Gertrude who goes out and is like, well, you know, I have a friend from the Bridge Club who has a nephew who has a daughter, right? Like, even even using trying to maximize your options, there's a relatively slim, you know, small pool of potential partners. Which means people, and given that most folks, not all folks, uh, but most folks have a drive, have a desire to try to find a, a, a mate, um, folks are going to have to settle more. And and I think it's so. You have a system that is engineered for the benefit of the patriarchy, in a sense, right? So I put on my my, my feminist hat here, where uh, men have more power in relationships in a pre-modern, pre-digital. Uh, economy, right? They're they're you know if you go back to say 19th century America, they're considered the breadwinners. Women are supposed to stay home in the domestic sphere. Men are the the public facing side of the household. They have more power to meet potential partners, um, and those potential partners aren't allowed. Like if you're, anyways, so that pool imbalance, the fact that the pool is smaller, accrues disproportionately to the benefit of the largest group within that pool, straight white men. But suddenly, if you kind of create a more level playing field, that benefits women more than it benefits men. So there, there is some portion of men who were maybe more marginal candidates for whatever reason. Maybe they're just not good looking. I mean, that that's part of it. People tend to self-select by their looks um, uh, or whatever. whatever. For whatever reason, they're relatively marginal candidates. Um, they're going to have the hardest time under the new regime. They're going to lose some of that, if you will – sexual privilege. Um, and so it makes sense that th this pool of angry, bitter, dispossessed men who are going to have a harder time finding a partner because of this change mm. are going to be angry. They're going to be online. They're be connected. They can find each other because of the power of the internet. So I, I, I think it's interesting to think about how that might play into the rise of the incel community. Th there was one uh, CEO of one of these uh, dating apps. It was actually a, it's a foreign dating app, but um where he noted that even in their system, uh, in general, male users, the, the most popular male users, the, the ones who are most likely to get a match, are actually less popular than their least popular female users. So across the board, women attract more interest on dating apps than men. Just, just mm -hmm. That's pretty impressive when the lowest qu quartile of women outperforms the top quartile of men. But you think what that means about the men in the bottom quartile or at the very bottom. He said basically there are about 5% of our male users who will never, no matter what they do, no matter how long they're on the dating app, who will they will never get a match. But and you think about how frustrating that would be. I mean, I I you know, I this this isn't a validation of incels going and doing terrible violent things like Elliot Rogers out in LA, right? Shooting women and in his misplaced rage. But you can see where why that would be frustrating, right? This idea of feeling a kind of biological drive to find a partner and then despite this matching technology, sh there's no match for me out there among how, how many billion human beings. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's my hypothesis. I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you buy that, Feeney? Yeah, it's certainly not implausible, right? Uh, I think in, in a world where you get more information and you're still not getting a match, the, you, the only option is to look in a mirror, right? I think for a lot of these guys that they think, well – uh, 
because fortunately we live in a world where women don't have to settle as much, mm-hmm. you know, they, so they have more, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I don't, things are far from perfect, right? But women are still compared to their ancestors more able to have financial independence yeah. to pursue careers. Uh, they don't have to be restricted to their small town in the middle of Iowa. If, um, it's much easier for them to find people who are 50 miles away. Um, what do you think, Gabriel? Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that it's easier in some ways for women now, but also I think that apps, especially for women, can also be deceptive in some ways. I won't go too much into my dating horror stories right now, but there definitely are. I've I've found at least that men go as far as to kind of deceive um, deceive females on apps about how they look and also just maybe also like their height. And I definitely could say from personal experience, and of course, no hard feelings to everyone, but definitely if you have certain things you're looking for and someone is not going to fit them, then it's difficult. And also it seems kind of mutually a waste of time if a guy is kind of deceiving you or they do one of those photos of three three people so you don't know who is <laughs> who it is and you think it's going to be the person on the left, it's the person in the middle, and you're like, yeah. so like you don't always completely know. But I definitely think that in some ways Bumble is good because it gives women more agency and more choices in terms of making that move and changing this whole patriarchal kind of – dating dating kind of dating apps and ter- well not dating apps but in terms of a guy has to make the first move it kind of reorganized that and i think it gives a nice sense of confidence to women so a lot of what we're talking about here mm-hmm. um is finer and finer tuned uh what's called assortative mating um which is the the way in which i mean it's all beings not just human beings all animals um uh choose partners based on certain phenotypes and for humans we're somewhat unique in that it's not just physical phenotypes like it is that too good-looking people will select for good-looking people and that's you know and and obviously there's exceptions to the rule i mean i am married after all so you can see which side of that divide mm-hmm. i'm on but like in general so there is physical phenotype selection assertive mating but there's also social so you can go and um online and say yeah i, I only want to date uh, Trump supporters, and we can talk about that in a bit, or clowns, or, or whatever, um, or gluten-free people. So there's all there's this, but we're getting better at doing that. I mean, we've always done that. I mean, when you went uh, back in the day, something like um, I think it was 15 percent of couples in 1940 met in church. Mm-hmm. So part of that is more people went to church in 1940. But I also think it's a, it was a function of people going to church to find a particular kind of person, right? You're trying to identify someone, someone as a partner based on shared belief, beliefs and attitudes and, and cultural assumptions. Uh, today, it's it's we're like maybe two or three percent meet partners at church, and um, but what, what we can now fine tune that in other ways. So rather than just saying I'm Episcopalian, I want to meet another Episcopalian, and of course wrapped up in all that is a lot of socioeconomic and uh, uh, racial identifiers and stuff go along with religion and denomination. So that was a way of doing a broader grained assertative selection. But now we can do that really specifically. I don't have to sell for another Episcopalian. I can want a pescatarian who uh, who only you know uh, who likes running uh, but not skydiving and voted for Hillary Clinton. Do you worry that this in the long run makes? Uh, the culture slightly more siloed than perhaps it should be. So I don't know what the optimal amount of siloing is, but 
it's becoming very easy to say, well, I'm only going to be friends with libertarians, say, and I'm only mm-hmm. going to date libertarians, and I'm going to consume libertarian news and, and all this and actually never get to meet uh, – if you choose to live this way, you could choose never to meet people with dramatically different political views than you. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how healthy that is necessarily, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I think it's um, it's occasionally good to get out of your comfort zone socially. Uh, maybe not for you know your life partner or something, right? That's that's a big decision. But uh, it it does seem odd on it seem it is odd to me the number of uh, parameters by which people discriminate. Yeah. And I guess politics is a big one. I'm not sure we have a lot of great data yet. I don't think we have had enough time to figure this out. There is. Now, this is interesting. This rubs up against some of the kind of uh, brighter uh, unintended consequences of dating apps. So we know, for example, that online dating has probably – it's a correlation rather than a causal relationship. But it's a pretty interesting correlation that online dating apps have accelerated the trend towards more interracial marriages than we would have expected otherwise over the last – two decades, it's probably several percentage points higher than it would have been in a vacuum. Um, so folks are less likely to select for a skin-based phenotype, more likely to select for other phenotypes that are obviously cross racial boundaries. Um, we've also seen, there was a study, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes, that um, there was a, and it just came out quite recently, I think last year, uh, it was the first real study of its type because I think to your point, it's hard to say they used five or six years of marriage data, but that's about all we got. And we you know, long like we want, if you want to measure success in marriage, it's got it's going to be you know longer than that. But this early study suggested that online dating apps have a slight but statistically significant um, smaller chance of ending in divorce, at least over five or six years, and have higher reported happiness. So. These finer grained assertative, you know, selection processes do appear to be yielding better relationships and more diverse, at least racially diverse relationships. So that would kind of, I mean, that's, it's not direct evidence what you're talking about, but it does seem to cut against this idea that dating apps are leading us into narrower, narrower, homogenous silos. It's doing a better job of matching us with people with like interests and those interests are less crude. I mean, part of it's that like choosing or not choosing someone based on race is, well, racist. It's also a really crude measure, right? It, it's it's like what makes you happy in a relationship are things that are a lot more fine-grained than, you know, scientific racism. It, it's, you know, stuff like, uh, you know, are, are do you both have uh, mutual languages uh, you know, carry emotional languages that you share in common. Do you like the same kinds of things? It's, it's right. Um, so I think that would cut against it. Uh, and then perhaps we, you'd have to look to the, to the research on like, has social media in general led to a siloing effect? And I think the literature there is pretty mixed. I mean, I'm not an expert in, in it, but my understanding is that like Facebook has, it's actually encouraged people to come and con- it, it. My understanding is, and this is just kind of off the cuff, is that things like Facebook have it have has encouraged people to be more um, assertive in their views. Like it makes people more. Um, if you're a conservative and you have a Facebook account, you're going to be more intensely conservative than if you don't. Um, but you're also more likely to have a relation to have connections to people who aren't conservative. 
So it's kind of this funky mixed bag where it like you do consume information that basically is about confirmation bias. It like deepens whatever your current beliefs are, but you're also more likely to encounter people with different beliefs. But that doesn't make you less convinced of what you currently think. So I don't know what to do with that. But you think that might cross apply to dating? I, I don't know. I think at this point the jury's still out. Um, but when we, when we talk about assertive mating, there's some like really bizarre applications of this. Uh, um, we've referenced some of the the political ones. Like there's a uh, – I think it's called Writer, uh, which is a dating app for uh, people who voted for Trump <laughs> basically. It's right-wing people. I, I, don't, I don't get the um, naming conventions of dating apps. Like you've got Tinder, no E, just the R, Grindr. This one does have an E, but like writer is clearly riffing off of that. I don't know why that became a naming convention. But here, you know, it's it's for people who are on the political right. And the, the, the founder said, look, uh, I live in D.C. And when people find out I uh, voted for Donald Trump or, you know, staffers for the Trump administration, they'll like, you know, break. They, they'll leave instantly in the middle of the first date. Um, so we need a place only for people who supported Trump to go and find matches. So there is all this like really kind and I on some level there's that and then there's the flip version there's like never trump dot dating for the hashtag resistance folks. And like on just like a visceral level that seems problematic. Like on a common sensical intuitive level. Uh like it, what? Mm-hmm. Well like imagine, I don't know. I mean well so it depends, right? Yeah, um yeah. There was that Politico article that came out a while ago, which was just a <laughs> just it was an article about all these Trump people, yeah, the yeah. administration officials or even supporters who just could not get dates in D.C., which um, I don't know. <laughs> Cry me a river, you know, I don't I just uh, It's not. Yeah. I, I, yeah. So yeah. I, I is I don't know. I, I don't. Uh, it, it's just a, a revealed preference, right? If yeah, if you yeah. really value a political opinion so highly that you cannot even conceive that you would ever yeah, be in a relationship yeah. with someone with a different view, then this makes sense, right? I, I suppose, though, there's a certain there's a certain kind of fiction here, which is this idea that, like, not only that we know what we really want, but that that actually is accurate. Like, I I don't. All the time, you know, we there's sayings that are popular. Opposites attract. It's it's in our it's in our it's in our literature and our film and TV. Romeo and Juliet is all about opposites attracting, right? Like I'm sure if they had the yeah, look what Romeo, happened to them. Yeah, if Romeo, <laughs> if Romeo and Juliet had OK Cupid, um, I, they probably wouldn't have matched, you know, right? Um, so a lot of these things are based on the pretense of knowledge, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure. And that can be problematic because people might think they want someone who didn't vote for Trump, but maybe they don't really care about that. You know, maybe they're going to be James Carville and uh, what's his partner's name? She's a, she's a, she's a Republican. He's a Democrat. Yeah, well, definitely also kind of a little bit of a personal story. But I one time I found that obviously living in D.C., it's inherently a very political city and that's either good or bad. I mean, definitely, I think with having dating parameters and maybe – in terms of what political parties you're looking for, someone who aligns more with your beliefs is good. That could also be bad. But I found that people have asked me out on dates to purposely debate politics me and explain to me why I'm <laughs> wrong. I'm as a, as a libertarian. Wow. I remember one time this guy, he asked he asked me out and he was he worked for some Democrat uh congressman or congresswoman. I, I forget who, but yeah, he purposely 
asked me how to explain to me why I'm wrong and why I'm not a libertarian. And I obviously explained to him why I thought he was wrong and he got so furious he stormed out. <laughs> so it's quality, not quantity, wow. though, I think always. Yeah. We should have a – there should be an app for anthropological field trips, like yeah. discover a libertarian yeah, exactly. in its natural habitat. <laughs> I'm all for that. That would be great. Right. <laughs> I'd lead the field trip. What is a libertarian's natural habitat? I'm trying to think of uh... – I think we're sitting in it. Um... Yeah. No, uh, I don't know. Podcast studio. Yeah. Paintball field. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think you, you raise a really interesting point uh, you know, without revealing much of – but I remember having a conversation with someone who uh, I think we discovered that actually if we had filled out a lot of these questionnaires, we would never have matched. Mm-hmm. Uh, because at least having – these questionnaires seem to – I believe there are a couple of sites who, who at least uh, they allow you, if I'm correct, like to weight how important this is, mm-hmm. right? So I'm not religious, but I don't really care. Or yeah, um, yeah. I'm not a vegetarian, but I don't hate vegetarians, right? That um, I can see why uh, that there are a lot of people who uh, meet organically who wouldn't have been matched necessarily. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I suppose this um, the algorithm is always trying to improve to try and actually figure this out. Um, so I guess that's a technology question more than a when the AI when the singularity takes over it'll perfectly match all all human beings. It's like uh, what's that Black Mirror episode where there basically is an algorithm that matches everyone and they, they have to like oh, it's one of the most bone chilling episodes. It is that. and it's basically yeah. a riff on what we're talking about here. Um, there is a dystopian future version of this though that um, uh, you brought up uh, Matthew with um, I think it was called Faramore. Uh, it's oh, based yeah, yeah. on genetic matching. Explain that mm-hmm. a little bit because it was kind of – Oh, well, I didn't like do, dig into it too much, although the, the, the idea seemed to be uh, dating based on genetics. Right? So ma- many many listeners will be familiar with the these uh, DNA genome ancestry sites, mm-hmm. which uh, are oftentimes marketed as – tools for genealogists, people interested in family history. So you yeah. spit in a tube and it gives you your DNA and it can automatically find uh, distant cousins and help you out there. Yeah. Uh, but there seemed to be a push to actually introduce this kind of technology into dating because some people think that, uh, you know, that there's this good like genetic compatibility among people, which you're getting into very creepy territory yeah. here if you ask me. But clearly some people are – Desire this, yeah. You can imagine, like, a uh, you, uh, you ever see the movie Gattaca with yes, yeah, Hawk, yeah, you know, sure. like where the genetic imperfect are not allowed to have like high powered careers or go into space or whatever he wants to do. You can imagine a world in which, like, uh, dating apps you're, you're only allowed to date certain people based on uh, well, you've got your genes just show that you are a suboptimal match, so sorry, you can date the other losers in the gene. I mean, this is obviously a fantastical vision, right? Um and we do gravitate towards those visions when the reality is like, like I said, the reality is that it appears to be making people happier. <laughs> well, so, more, so. I, I want to be clear about what I'm talking about here. So what I'm not talking about is ordinary gene therapy. So it's totally normal for couples who want to have children to have their genes tested to see sure. if there's a chance they'll pass on an inheritable disease they didn't know about yeah. to their children. And that seems like a, a sensible thing And someday right, to we'll do. be able to fix it potentially too. Right, potentially. Yeah. Uh, and But on the flip side, this is not also checking for phenotypes that are yeah. obvious. So you can yeah. tell if the person you're dating is white or tall yeah. Yeah. or has brown eyes. You can tell that sort of stuff. This It seems to me the only reason you'd be interested in this because you want to get stuff that you can't see, the stuff that you can't measure. And that's when I get... A little creeped out by it. Yeah, know. yeah. But uh, no, the Gattaca future is <laughs> <laughs> worth uh, yeah. avoiding. Um, 
And I think this also point, I mean, the idea that your genetic makeup influences pheromones and that's the basis of sexual attraction. Therefore, if we do a little swab test, we'll know what your pheromone, that's all pseudoscience. And it gets back to this idea of we, people have this pretense, we think we know things that we really don't know. Like, is the basis of, of love and attraction compatible pheromones or is it uh, compatible politics or is it compatible I don't know. I don't think it's any of those things. I think it's more complicated than that. But all these apps do trade on a pretense of knowledge. But at the same time, that's kind of been true of relationship making throughout human history. I mean, whether it's relying on, you know, uh, the, you know, the babushka, the grandma babushka of the village, who's the official matchmaker. Yes, I am just basically citing the plot of uh, Fiddler on the Roof. But, you know, the matchmaker matching you based on relative arbitrary kind of things that actually probably aren't to do with your personal compatibility, but about family and socioeconomic status and the like. Is that really any, again, there's a lot of pretension of knowledge there. There's a lot of uh, uh, factors that really don't matter when it comes to, is your marriage going to be successful and happy? Is your relationship going to be successful and happy and the like? So that's kind of the constant. We're just doing it online instead of offline. I'm not sure that's worse or better. In fact, it may be slightly better. And it's old too. I mean, there was a, one of the articles we read had a personal ad, the first personal ad from 1695 in the... Um, really desperate. <laughs> really desperate. <laughs> well, here, here's the level of desperation. It was in the a periodical in England called the Collection for the Improvement of Husbandry and Trade. And not like husbandry, you know, like animal, raising, right. raising animals. Yeah. Uh, and the ad was a gentleman about 30 years of age that says he has a very good estate uh, willing to match himself to some good young gentlewoman that has a fortune of three thousand pounds or thereabouts, which was quite a lot of money back then. So he's like, "I'm well off. I want a rich girl. Like I'm going to advertise in the uh, animal raising periodical." So I mean, this is an <laughs> old thing to do, um, and we're just moving it online. So I, I think in part one of the big takeaways for me is this. I think militates against the alarmism that was kind of in vogue three, four, five years ago. There were lots of articles, The Atlantic, New Yorker, um, where it was all about how they were blaming the rise of online dating apps for the decline in marriage and the um, and this idea of like young people these days can't form meaningful relationships or just interested in casual sex, et cetera. But we know now that Despite the idea that you have an entire suite of like hookup apps that are focused on casual relationships, Gen Z and millennials, we actually have less sex than previous generations. So if it's the apps that are the cause of this, you wouldn't expect that to be the trend. We actually are – yeah, we have less sex later with fewer partners than uh, Gen X or baby boomers. Um, and then also, yeah, there's some early intriguing statistical uh, statistical information suggesting that online dating apps correlate with more durable, happier marriages. So I think you're something you mentioned earlier, Feeney, car culture, the rise of car culture in the 50s, and everyone freaked out that cars were enabling the sexual revolution along with the pill. Um, and, you, you know, I mean, there was a, a bit of a moral panic over it. I saw it in film and TV. It was a, it was a thing. But anytime there's a new tech that ha- entails some social disruption, I think you have to remember that every other time this has happened, it was never as bad as the, as the most panic thought it was, would be. Yeah, I've dug up a, 
I think it was in the New York Times, uh, an article from years and years ago during the, the advent of the telephone where people were talking about how the telephone was going to ruin romance. <laughs> uh, and yeah, this is, uh, this is not a new complaint, right? New technologies always seem to be accompanied by panics. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is just the latest iteration. Although, like we said earlier, it's, um, it seems to have worn off. Because yeah. uh, now it doesn't seem, no one bats an eyelid when someone says, oh, how'd you meet? And like, oh, you know, online dating. Yeah. It used to be this this sort of hilarious cultural trope of people like, oh, well, what are we going to tell our parents? Like, we're not going to, yeah. are we really going to say we met it online? Uh, and now I don't think people really care that much about it. No, our kind of cultural mores have caught up with the tech. Yeah, well, one thing even going further than that is that Bumble also now has an option called Bumble BFF, where you can essentially using dating app to make your new BFF, your new best friend forever, apparently. And it seems it's either ingenious in terms of a way to expand your social circle or kind of strange because it's you're not meeting people in a very organic way. But then again, if we say that dating apps are successful and you're not going to meet people in an organic way, that why should that stop us from making friends in that way? So it's it's interesting to see where apps are going to go in the further in terms of networking and just also making friends and going in that direction. Um, I think to, to close here, one last thought is that it is intriguing. One, one of the intriguing aspects of this to me, uh, the kind of a more libertarian angle is that there has never really been serious discussion in the United States about regulating the dating app scene. Um, yet it's instructive that it didn't have to be that way. Part of this is a function of the internet itself being a relatively unregulated space uh, until recently and who knows what the future has. But – and this is a thing happening on online and so I think it benefits from that kind of salutary government neglect. Um, but there are other countries where dating apps have elicited kind of government pushback. Uh, I, my understanding, I don't have a lot of knowledge about the exact legislative details, but in places like India, there's a lot of concern about these apps undermining traditional matchmaking, like where parents select your future partner. The idea of like individuals choosing partners based on compatibility is, is you know, you can imagine it's, it's at cross purposes with that traditional matching system. And so there's some pushback from, you know, like uh, conservative um, uh, Hindus uh, in, in the Indian politics against dating apps. I don't think it's come to the point of a ban, but you can easily imagine that being true if this were a thing that was easier to regulate. I mean, there, there's always going to be kind of puritanical scolds who are going to imagine the worst possible implications of a new technology who, if they have enough power, enough oversight and authority – are going to be tempted to regulate it out of existence. Um, so thankfully, we don't have that. And now these days, you know, dating apps have gone from object of moral panic and and puritanical scorn to just like how Harry met Sally. It's just ordinary. And I think that's a it is a salutary example of how societies and economies, political economies, all this comes together with a dating app. How, if you just leave them alone, cool, interesting things can happen in these free spaces. So there you go. Dating apps. Evidence of, of markets working, of freedom uh, being good for society. Uh, and on that note, happy Valentine's Day. Um, 
if you celebrate Valentine's Day, you can, you know, go do something with your significant other who I assume you met on Bumble or OkCupid <laughs> or eHarmony or Tinder. Uh, if you don't celebrate Valentine's Day because it's a creation of corporate interests uh, to sell lots of crap, that's fine too. Uh, you, can, you can still use those apps on every, 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 uh, every other day of the year. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.